Today I'm talking to Matt Smiley, headed for a doctorate of musical arts. The Rickshaw Live is a pedal-powered live performance soundstage that specializes in launching close contact between music makers and a crowd, sometimes from a street, plaza, or sidewalk, or here from the Podmosphere, where we chat with the makers. Come join us as we roll with it. Hello, Matt Smiley. Hi, how are you, Tim? Good, good to see you and hear you. Wow, it's been a bit since I've uh, laid my eyes on your face, and I'm glad to see you are healthy and well, and you have done well despite the pandemic, it looks like. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been very lucky this last year, and uh, I think more so than uh, a lot of musicians and artists right now. So um, yeah, just just been doing my best this past year. I just wanted to say that I met Matt in the um, in Ace Gillette's at uh, one of his you know subterranean gigs down there, and became a fan of his music and uh, became a fan of the duo of Matt and Kelsey down in the, in the subterranean basement there. And they became a really early pieces of the equation for what launched the Rickshaw Live and were one of the most, probably as we look back at it, did the most shows ever on the little Rickshaw, Ricky, um, show after show and uh, tolerated all sorts of stuff that the little Ricky Rickshaw would throw at musicians and the captains and whatnot. And they never complained and they never had any sense of composure issues. They played through the bumps and the rocks and the rolls and it was fantastic. And, and uh, I've got lots and lots of pictures and video of that and really appreciate the time that you guys played on board. Matt. And the other thing that Matt, you did over the years is essentially you were the talent uh, organizer for uh, for gigs. And so if you and Kelsey weren't playing, you would be finding somebody else that was a skilled and talented player to be on board. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that. Oh, of course. Yeah. Glad to help out. I know um, uh, with my my own uh, situation being a freelance musician, um, it afforded me kind of the time and availability to to devote more time into the rickshaw, especially during those early um, formulative uh, uh, years of it. But then with Kelsey, she had a family and a full time uh, job at UNC uh, Greeley. Um, as the associate director of the jazz studies program. So then that kind of uh, sort of created a situation in which she wasn't always as available as me, uh, which helped out then to reach out into the local Northern Colorado music community. And um, I think at one point uh, I had a maybe more of a country style folk guitarist that I got to play with some uh, uh, Josh Long um, as well as some other great um, vocalists, uh, Cam- uh, Camilla Vititis, um, uh, Stephanie Kaiser, Amanda Riggers, a uh, lot of really great singer piano players, um, Andrew Vogt on saxophones. Um, yeah, and, and just one quick memory as I'm thinking about those early days on the, the original Little Ricky. I remember the first time going over to John's garage and kind of checking checking out uh, everything with Kelsey and uh, f- 
kind of quickly making the observation, well, it's a good thing that we're very good friends with uh, how close proximity we were to one another while playing on it. Um. <laughs> it's true. I've got some great pictures that John took, some still shots of that. And John actually still talks about that session as one of kind of the most near and dear to his heart as he saw how you guys, you know, crawled into this fairly <laughs> tiny stage uh, that wasn't really even a stage yet. It was just a, a, a little box, if you will, almost a virtual box that we had some instruments kind of slung into. And you literally had to crawl under and into and through things to actually get into a playing position. And we've got that, we've got pictures of all that. I'm going to put that all into a timeline on the Rickshaw Live because it is so entertaining. One of the uh, other memories that I did get around to already capturing and putting on the YouTube channel for the Rickshaw Live is the Woodlot session. And if you remember when uh, we, we made the the shift from the small Ricky stage to the big Rota, we needed to know if the stage dimensions of four by six feet was going to be enough to accommodate, well, at least three players and maybe four. And so what I had John do is I had him make this wooden fence and inside the fence, I put the, the Nord keyboard, the drum set and the stick bass and had Chris Hewitt, I believe, was the drummer on that set. Elise was uh, at the keyboard, and you were on the stand-up bass, and Elise had a headset mic. And that was outside in John's backyard in the dark. John had uh, some lights on it, and uh, we had all the audio, the XR18, the two turbo sounds. That was all set, the, uh, the side mix using the iPad. And you guys just played. And what I did is I walked around with the iPhone and just shot the video of you guys playing. And so that little chunk, a uh, piece of that chunk, I put up on YouTube as the Woodlot Sessions. And it's uh, it's pretty charming. I, I never get enough of looking at that. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll have to look that up later. I wasn't aware that was uh, online. But I, I fondly remember that session of... Um, not not knowing what the newer uh, Rhoda rickshaw was going to look like and and showing up and seeing this wood frame that was, you know, laid out uh, in the driveway and uh, and kind of starting to get like an early conception of, OK, so so this is kind of the space that we're navigating and looking for. Um, which will then be, yeah, uh, bike, bike propelled and in full uh, full view soon enough. Yeah, it was uh, it was fantastic. And actually what what you guys proved to us was a couple of things that night. You proved that we could we could, in fact, have three players in that space, including the drum kit. And um, and really, we we felt like we proved as well that if we took the drum kit out and had a different configuration, we could accommodate four players. The other thing that I learned that night, which I did not know until that night, was whether or not the sound from the generator would be so loud as to really impair the the appreciation of the amplified music. And what we learned that night was that the generator was not uh, too loud and the music amplification at just moderate levels was sufficient to give really good sound field. And 
So, you know, for a, an experiment in uh, the drive, you said the driveway, it was dirt. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was nothing fancy and out there in the dark, a crazy experience and really fun to look back on that. Yeah, yeah. And and as I recall, like around that same time, once we started getting um, um, uh, the, the newer... Um, rickshaw up and running i think right around that time just through the trial and error of things we ended up kind of switching from playing the um electric upright bass uh moving over to more of um just a standard like fender four string electric bass just because of navigating the kind of the motion of the rickshaw and uh and how you know, I needed to kind of stand and stabilize myself while playing with the other musicians. So then I kind of remember having my sort of um, standard uh, stand up seat belt where I was standing in a corner on the new rickshaw and I would kind of get roped in or, or, or belted in while standing up so that I wasn't, you know, moving around with all the bumps and turns uh, and then could play bass and, and be very um, stationary while doing so. You know, that's the thing that is um is so unique and is so kind of complicated about the rickshaw live and that is that you are playing while in motion and so there's all of this motion artifact to your world if you will that um i noticed that when when we had some less experienced players on board that was very disconcerting to them. Hitting a bump, uh, any kind of like geospatial reorientations would be a real big problem. The pros, you guys, the people you brought on board never missed a beat. They sang and played through it and it was really amazing. And so, you know, the primary source of that experience being the musicians and their instruments came through the sound system and a credit to the sound system. I mean, I know Behringer and Turbo Sound and uh, Yamaha and Nord never, there's nothing in their literature about that equipment performing while in motion. <laughs> right. So, well, and, and, and I do remember there was this, this extra aspect as well. Um, kind of learning early on with the rickshaw that, um, uh, if we really try to play music we all know very well, sometimes focusing maybe more on simpler music than things that are more complex, then the easier it would be to be able to play in motion and to play with, you know, moving around because of low, low hanging tree branches or because um, that that was some experiments, especially with maybe some of these more inexperienced players was trying to then sometimes play music that was a little too tough. And then, you know, that uh, kind of adds another layer of complexity to make the whole thing work. Exactly. Now, you guys really figured it out. And I really appreciate, again, the, the work that you did in terms of recruiting really, you know, top end players that could literally roll with it it was you know ultimately we took it as a hashtag roll with it and moving the music and and you know the players are the ones that that's all about you're moving your music and you guys rolled with it and you still roll with it so i want to thank you again for that i'm gonna have a, i'm gonna do a special session with you and kelsey where I want to talk more about the early days of the Rickshaw Live and more of these technical things, but I do not want to spend any more time on that. I want to get right over to your music. And so tell me what you've been doing now with your music. 
Um, yeah. So uh, um, what I mentioned earlier in the podcast about um, I've just had a lot of luck as a musician and an artist. Um, one of those is um, as soon as everything kind of started shutting down in, in March, uh, unfortunately, I had a, a doctoral recital at school that um, got canceled two or three days before because it was scheduled for March 15th. And I think school at CU Boulder had shut down March 12th or March 13th. Um, but then after that, a lot of um, uh, both Colorado, national, uh, federal, different arts grants and organizations opened up to help kind of provide various COVID relief. And so um, anytime I would find any kind of funding opportunities like that, I would immediately apply and, and was very lucky with receiving several grants, um, some of which actually funded some some projects for me. Uh, so through CU Boulder, there was a small arts grant that um, I basically ended up writing about 50 compositions for solo players. So I had several friends that I thought, well, if everyone's stuck at home and nobody's playing gigs, I can write these solo pieces for everyone that I know. Um, and then they can either do a video or audio recording of these solo compositions since they're just stuck at home, not gigging as well. And so, yeah, I wrote about 50 pieces and I think I got about 15 to 20 of them recorded. And the other ones are just kind of out in the ether, you know, hopefully one day I'll hear them. Wow. Um, uh, so that was an initial like really cool thing that I kind of got involved in just with all my work kind of being canceled overnight but to keep me um, driving creatively. Very nice. And what what about the next round? There's like more relief coming for musicians. Uh, I think Colorado had something mm -hmm. special for the, the Colorado Creative Industries. And then it sounds like there's some additional relief coming for uh, maybe venues or and potentially players as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been lucky enough to play at a Muse performance space that's in um, Lafayette, Colorado, and they have a really wonderful live stream set up with um, um, Pete, Pete Lewis and Claire Church. And I'm not exactly sure the name of the funding, but they have some kind of arts or grants funding where um, they can make sure to basically pay musicians at a basic rate, as well as take in um, donations or ticket sales virtually through Venmo. And so it's been a really great mutually beneficial kind of situation for, for their venue and for the musicians to have an opportunity to do these sort of very high quality live stream performances. That is so exciting. I just can't wait. You know, here we are just at the at the front door of February in 2021. Maybe in the spring, you know, the spring of this year, we can come out of our little burrows and get back to what it is that we need and want with musical consumption and you, you guys on the maker's end making the music that we need. Definitely, definitely. Well, and, and in lieu of um, being able to do these sort of live performances and having so much more free time and, and with the help of some of these arts grants that I've applied for, uh, I kind of went a little too far last fall and I ended up recording two um, full length albums of all my original music with two different bands at two different recording studios about three weeks apart from one another. Oh, man. <laughs> Where did you get the energy for that? Yeah, yeah. And and again, very radically different music. I had one album that was a um, trio with saxophone, drums and bass. 
But then the caveat was there was a fourth musician who was taking signals from all of the acoustic musicians, feeding them into um, Max through Ableton, which is like an electronic music, you know, um, platform. So then he was doing live sampling and filtering and editing and chopping up things and throwing it back at us. So we had this basically electronic musician that was improvising along with us. That's crazy. Is that the Endgame Trio? Uh, so, so that one um, uh, is uh, I finished reading the Dune book series over the last year, and so I've named that that project um, Gom Jabbar, which is one of the terms <laughs> from the Frank Herbert uh, Dune books. Nice. Well, what, um, what about this piece that you uh, you pitched over to me uh, from the Endgame Trio? Apocalypse Scorpion is the mm-hmm. way the album cover appears and the the piece that you sent over is High Tide. I'll just play a little bit of it, then you can tell us about it. Great. some kind of digital or, or physical medium <laughs> on average it seems like it takes me about it two years to to turn those around um so this is a great trio with my friend alex nauman on guitar and drew heller on drums and um the name of the group and the album title are named after two things that my friend alex is very interested in which is um chess and hot peppers so the in in game trio comes from the chess terminology of in game and then alex uh i think he still has a greenhouse it it might have gotten destroyed with a hailstorm, but i think he was able to rebuild it um he grows a lot of hot peppers at his house and so at the time he was excited about this certain strain of hot pepper called an apocalypse scorpion pepper which is on the same kind of level as like a ghost pepper Wow, nice. <laughs> and we just thought for, for a jazz rock band, that's a perfect uh, uh, name for a band and name for an album. Fantastic and very creative cover. I love the Scorpions. Absolutely great. Yeah, yeah. So we ended up doing um, limited edition vinyl only with digital downloads. So there's no physical CDs. And then Alex designed the, his own um, uh, graphic um, um, woodcuts himself for the album graphics so he designed them did the cutting 
uh, did the hand-stamped ink for every album cover. And so it's about as customized as it gets because the ink gradation is slightly different depending on which album you get. Sometimes it's black ink, sometimes it's red ink, sometimes it's a combination thereof. Um, so, so for, for people who like vinyl and the kind of DIY aspect of music, it's, it's perfect. It's beautiful. What a, what a wonderfully creative approach to it. I love it. And the music is amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I love these kind of projects, uh, which I've done a lot with Alex over the years where we both kind of contribute about half of the compositions. So it ends up having this really nice organic quality because it's not a hundred percent my music, but it's not a hundred percent his music either. And, and the kind of music we both write really weaves in and out of each other in a really nice, nice way. That's wonderful. What a great collaboration. Well, what's next on the horizon as you uh, as you kind of get through the rest of the Colorado winter? Let's see, you, you've got a lot of academic things in process, but I'm sure that hasn't put any ice on your creativity. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I have a, a good way of always coming up with side creative projects, which are either um, specific career-based, you know, things or things purely for fun. And um, so one thing that's coming up soon for me, um, over the last five years or more, I've been involved in this creative project with friends of mine called February Album Writing Month. And so it's actually an international thing. You can go to um, fawm.com or .org uh, is the website, but it basically is a, a social media styled website for this monthly event. And the idea is you take the entire month of February and try to write a minimum of 14 songs, which is two, uh, a song every two days. And then you try to post the lyrics and audio recordings of this brand new songs that you're writing to this website and have people listen to it and comment and critique. And there's forums and all that. Uh, so not only do I get involved with that, but I also share it in a Facebook group with friends of mine that um, my friend Brianna Harris runs, uh, who's a wonderful saxophonist and songwriter in Greeley. Um, so this is something I've done for years and years, but uh, uh, that's something I'll be starting up soon um, uh, because as I'm a professional jazz musician, I also love to try to get into the singer-songwriter thing, which is not really my wheelhouse, but it's, um, but it's very creative and fun, you know, whether, whether it turns out well or not. <laughs> now, do you have a sense if, this, uh, if the amount of people involved in this project for February is going to be tremendously increased compared to prior years just because of the condition of the world? Oh, oh, potentially very much so. And, and every year I try to share this kind of group on, on Facebook and social media to try to get more friends involved in it. Um, and it's, and it's fascinating to take part of the, the website version that connects me with people internationally because everyone is doing such creative things that are so different. You know, someone might be very influenced by Irish or Celtic music. Someone might be interested in, in, you know, hair metal and, and, and speed metal. Somebody might be a punk rock person and it's just, it's so all over the map and it's really cool to get to connect and, and, um, connect with other musicians and have them listen to your music and you listen to their music. And it's just, it's just a really nice exchange. I don't know who came up with the idea, but it's brilliant. 
Wow, it sounds fantastic. I'm going to put links to that at the footer of uh, of the description of this session so that there will be links there on the YouTube video. What are you doing uh, in academics? Um, yeah, so this is um, right now at the halfway point between my doctorate at CU Boulder in um, jazz studies. And so uh, I have one and a half years left. Uh, it's a three-year degree. Um, so this will be my final semester of coursework. So um, I had to take um, a prerequisite exam last week on post-tonal music theory, which is a style of contemporary classical music theory from the 20th century. And so I passed off this exam so I could take this final course, which is music after 1945. So it's uh, not a jazz class, but it's a music class I still need for my doctorate. And so every single class is a different composer and a different piece specifically by that composer. So it's kind of figuring out how to analyze some of this more contemporary music, everything from um, Berio to Stravinsky to Morton Feldman to um, uh, Milton Babbitt. So it, it's really, it's all over the map and all the pieces we're looking at are very different from one another. Um, but it's music that I love and enjoy. And I'm, I'm very excited to kind of be in a class like this and, and dive into that sort of uh, new music. Where are you in that program in terms of your end, end of uh, the program or completion? Um, yeah, so um, so I've done I've performed two out of five of the recitals I need. So I'm about halfway through my recitals. This semester, I'll be done with all of my coursework. And then by my third year next year, um, fall 2021, going into spring 2022, um, the only things I'll have left are some very specific teaching requirements. Um, so I'll be teaching a jazz history class for non-majors, which is about 100 uh, students, um, which I've never done anything like that before. Um, and then uh, and then I also have to do a, um, a dissertation, which I my committee has been put together for that. I just haven't decided quite what I want my dissertation topic to be, but I've got two or three ideas that I'm kind of bouncing between and uh, so, so mostly my last year will be teaching and, and dissertation writing and research. Wow. If we get back on the streets this spring, I assume we can pry you out of all of your projects to get on the moving stage, uh, with oh, and, some help moving got, the music. And I've got, uh, 50 musicians in the jazz studies program that would all be very excited to be part of it as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, I want to say that, uh, you know, I did talk to Steve Meyer at Main Street Pedicabs a few weeks ago, and I put a session up that we talked about uh, the trajectory of this concept of using pedicabs that have been converted to sound stages to mobilize music. And he's very excited as well and really um, is very supportive of, of helping me out expand the number of machines that we can get out on the streets. And so that's what we're hoping to do. And I'm so excited to hear that you have got a, a, a handle on a number of players to bring to the stage. It's going to be exciting. Oh, very much so. And, and uh, 
I know from past experiences, one of the most fun things is the piano player shows up and looks at the Nord keyboard and, and says, wow, this is better than the keyboard I have. Or, you know, the drummer shows up and usually most of them will say something like, wow, I've, I've never actually played an electronic drum kit before. This is going to be so cool. <laughs> it's fun. And I'm so excited that we'll be, uh, you know, we'll have the in-ear uh, hearback system as well uh, on board this spring. And then uh, again, we're gonna do everything we can to stream live from every moving show and then give the players a, a digital copy of their performance so they can use that in their media kit. So that's gonna be exciting. Matt, I am so glad you were able to take some time to talk and give us an update on your music and what you've been up to. And I'm so glad you've been able to stay healthy and well. And not only that, but clearly have been further developing your expertise and talent as a player. Congratulations. Oh, I'm trying. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I, I have to stay busy. And so uh, with all this free time over the last year, um, it, it's definitely allowed for more things to kind of open up. So yeah, it's it's been good for me. <laughs> Fantastic. Next thing I'm going to do is get you and Kelsey together to talk about uh, your joint music projects in the past and your recollections about the early days of the Rickshaw Live. So thanks again, Matt, and the best of luck to you as you get ready to go to the classroom and teach 100 college kids. <laughs> good luck in that and good luck in your music adventures. Thanks again for being on. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Tim. Thanks for joining the Rickshaw Live podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay on our trajectory. And until you hear us again, stay safe.